0: Welcome to the Classical Mind Podcast, a podcast about great books. Uh, We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker.
1: And I am Dr. Jared Henderson.
0: Jared, how are you doing?
1: I am doing okay. I would say I am doing better now that I have uh, finished this book. Um, I've finished Beowulf, so (laughs) I feel pretty good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, today we're we're discussing Beowulf. Jared um, hates Beowulf, listeners. uh,
1: My view is that Beowulf is fine. But you know, I had posted in our chat on Substack with some of yep. our subscribers, our paid subscribers, uh, where we chat with them sometimes. I, I I had posted, I'm like, "What do you do when you have to force yourself to read a book? What do you right. do? Or, or are there classics that you had to force yourself to finish because you knew they'd be worth it? Um, because sure. Beowulf was one of those books for me. I just, for a variety of reasons, found myself having to kind of." really dedicate myself to reading rather than just picking it up out of sheer pleasure.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, actually that's kind of a good entryway, I think into, into the book, I, I would love to kind of camp out on some of these points a little bit more. First of all, was this the first time you've read Beowulf or have you read it before? I
1: have read it before, but I think I was 12 years old when I read it the first time.
0: Sure. Okay. So, so very I, different I context
1: really long time ago. And, um, a lot of it was really hard for me to remember. Um, yeah. I don't remember which translation I read or anything like this, but you know, I was kind of like a precocious 12 year old who thought I would go and read ancient books or something. Cause all the adults would look at it and say, Ooh, what's that?
0: I love it. I love it. So if you had to kind of, well, first of all, I should say, you know, the, describing it as fine is like what my wife does when things are not fine.
1: So. I am from the Midwest, so you might think that this is actually deep, dark criticism. But I, I actually do just think it's fine. I I, I don't think it's particularly yeah. awful or anything like that. It's not going in that very small list that I have of books that I hate. Um, I, I think if I had to kind of guess on like why I struggled with this book, one of the things is, um, I actually am not like the biggest lover of poetry in the world. Mm, I I can okay. read some poetry and enjoy it there's a few select works that I have like a really strong affinity for, but I have really often struggled, especially with narrative poetry. I actually, um, I don't hate Homer to be clear, but I also struggle reading, um, Homer a lot of the time. Interesting. And and while I like Dante, I, I have to really force myself to kind of get into Dante. And I, and I think narrative poetry for me has never been the easiest genre.
0: So it's really more of a genre, issue than a uh, specific, like, specific to Beowulf? Or would you say in that list, Beowulf might be one of the weaker entries? I, w-
1: I would least really say this. So I, I already struggle a little bit with narrative poetry. And then there are some specifics to how Beowulf is written, where you, you do actually need to be attentive to most lines to understand mm-hmm. the story, because the story should sure. happen uh, very quickly, actually. It's right. not that repetitive of a text. Um, I kind of feel like if you miss a line in Homer, you will probably be told the line again. Yes. I've got to go do this Telemachus because Telemachus, you have to go and do this, you know, is <laughs> how it often feels when you read it. Um, with Beowulf, it's, it's very terse. And so if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss a lot of, a lot of stuff. You're, you're not going to be able to follow the story at all, even. Um, right. And because of that, I found that I had to pay more attention to this text than I naturally wanted to give it. And, and so it was just that kind of that extra work. And as a text, it kind of presented some extra difficulties for me. Interesting.
0: Very interesting. I I will say that uh, I love Beowulf. I think Beowulf is fantastic. As I was reading it, I felt like, you know, I was reading part of Lord of the Rings or something, um, which also made me wonder why we cannot make a good film adaptation of this story, because there's been no good film adaptation of Beowulf.
1: That is interesting. I I think, yeah, that that's right. I I, I know there was, what the uh, adaptation with um, was it Demi Moore? Was it or Angelina Angelina
0: Jolie? Jolie, Angelina, Jolie. Angelina Jolie, but it's like yeah. CGI. It's it's the yeah. Fuller Express. It's the same uh, c- CGI stuff.
1: Yeah, 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 and and I, that never seemed to have any kind of. Uh, that didn't have any,
0: you know. It, it written it's by because, Neil Gaiman though, which is interesting. You would expect yeah. it to be better, but it, I, they took a lot of liberties with the text, which I understand why. I mean, half of the text feels like side stories about things that are adjacent to the actual main action.
1: Yeah, like suddenly you'll get a s- small story about the history of some side character who right? they right. is going to interact with for a paragraph or a stanza, right? Yeah. Um, and so there, there is something strange there, but, there, but something to the story of a warrior – who one is just like fantastically strong, sort of almost godlike in in, in his abilities, who can defeat these creatures, uh, you know, can defeat Grindel and Grindel's mother, and then ages, you know, becomes a king, ages, and then kind of has his last stand, um, while you know all of his uh compatriots have like abandoned him, basically, all, all you know, all of, all of his all hmm. you know, there's a lot, there is a lot there. I, I mean. The story could be quite compelling I, I i don't see why this story couldn't have gotten basically the peter jackson treatment
0: right right
1: and, and, and i want to say that's peter jackson of the lord of the rings not peter jackson of the hobbit
0: true true yeah but it and the thing i mean you know the, the narrative poetry genre might pose some difficulties but there are scenes that are incredibly cinematic too. Like you can almost see how the movie would play out. Like the part that really stood out to me on this read through is when they do go to Grendel's mother's cave and while they're standing kind of on the mirror, um, you know the gore is bubbling up from the mm-hmm. waters and stuff, yeah, and yeah. like you could just you could just see that like a horror movie basically. I mean, I thought it would be a really compelling scene. You know,
1: or or um, there's the scene when uh, they are fighting the dragon at the end, and it's just Beowulf and like the one young warrior who will come, and that warrior's like uh, whose name is escaping me right now, but his shield is essentially destroyed with the in the flames. But Beowulf's yeah. indoors, so he has to get behind Beowulf or something. Yeah, you can imagine yeah. this. This could look great, right?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, listeners, if you want to give us enough money, a couple million dollars, we will make sure that this happens. So,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: All we right. Clearly, well, have
1: the vision for it. Though.
0: We do. Yes. Well, let's um let's jump into the into the text a little bit. Um, I think that what I like about Beowulf is this emphasis on Power and rulership in responsible, virtuous ways. Mm. Um, perhaps that's a maybe a needed corrective to how we tell stories today in some, some ways or maybe a reaction against that in my own mind. But um but I think I mean I think in some ways the thesis of the whole book is on page well I'm I'm using the Seamus Haney bilingual edition. I like having the old English on the page next. Oh okay. So I can't I'm read using... the old English. Yeah. But I'm I also using
1: that. Seamus Heaney, who we should talk about the like the the literary status of this translation. Oh, in sure. In a moment, yeah, yeah. It, like at some point, but I'm using the Norton edition. I love these Norton critical editions. When people ask mm. me the editions to buy, like I always point them in the direction of these because they'll often have selections from scholarly works with like historical context and things. Oh, very. Um, cool. um. In fact, it's a huge book by comparison. You know, Beowulf is like what 80 pages in this and. Most of it is secondary text and that they call context here. So I, I really love those editions, and it only has Old English on the first page and the last page, just to kind of uh, display the rhythm of Old mm-hmm, English. But mm-hmm. but you can't read the whole thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I do like that. Well, maybe maybe before we jump into the thesis of the book, we could talk about the the translation. Then what what um, specifically did you well did you find? Uh, Haney's translation to be difficult to read at all, or did, did that, was it good in your estimation? So I, I do think that,
1: I do think Shaney makes this very readable. And for that, I, I really want to say like, this is pretty uh, impressive, but what's actually um, notable is that Shaney received the Nobel prize in literature Mm -hmm. for this translation. Right. And I don't know of other works who have won as a translator. Now, mm. that's not because I actually have, like, an encyclopedia, uh, encyclopedic knowledge of people who have won the Nobel Prize in literature, but that's kind of astounding, actually, that I right. could recognize a translation, obviously, of kind of an Ur er text for a lot of, <laughs> of you know, uh, Eng- English literature and as we think about myth and things sort of in this part of the world, um, or thinking of, like, myths in the English Isles or something like that. Uh-huh. That's um, British Isles. Sorry. Someone's going to get mad. Um yeah. So obviously, it's like again important status uh, and work. So you could see why someone would it would be notable to have produce a great translation of it. But still, it's like as a translator, he was being noted as like fantastic uh, in this regard. And he was also a poet
0: on mm. his
1: own, which I think you would really need to be to translate a work like this.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, he definitely he definitely captures the. I think that that kind of um, image. Aspect of the text very well. Like I said, it's almost cinematic at times.
1: At times. And I think that there's, a t- if I had to attribute kind of a tone to Beowulf, the two words that come together for me are kind of a noble ferocity. Mm-hmm. So, because it, it is a ferocious text and it's gory. You know, <laughs> I can't believe they let very. a 12 year old check this out. Uh, uh, but it's also so noble. It's the whole time Be- Beowulf the figure is dignified Mm -hmm. and and that's kind of astounding that you can have both of those. And really you can kind of feel both of those. Mm -hmm. Um, This might be in one of these texts that I like a lot more the more I talk about it, um, you know, as I process it or something, but uh, you, so you can feel that. And so I, and I would imagine if I could read all English, I bet I would say that that noble ferocity is sort of in the text and that Haney is able to sort of capture it rather Mm -hmm. than to like impose it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I feel like listeners to this podcast would probably also want to note that there's a Tolkien translation of Beowulf.
0: Yes, yes, but I've never, and I've never read it. I, I've not read this translation, um, but his essay on Beowulf is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he gave that in the 20s, I think, but it's mm-hmm. one of those things that. When you pick up – I mean they mention it in the edition of my book in the introduction, and I'm sure somewhere in the critical notes in your text they do as well. Um, it still informs a good deal of the conversation about Beowulf today. Interesting. Um, yeah. Almost 100 years later. So – and obviously – and and we should say too, Beowulf clearly influences Tolkien – in some of the storytelling decisions that he makes, for example, what is it that wakes up the dragon in Beowulf? It's the fact that there's some guy who robs the dragon, it's the thief. basically. It's the thief. Yeah.
1: There's even important numbers that they talk about. Yeah. Collecting a 13th or a 14th member of a band and mm-hmm. things like this. Mm-hmm. I saw Tolkien, like, all over this text. Um, yeah. You know, there's a there's a line that C.S. Lewis said about himself when he was talking about medieval works, which is that he claimed he could read them like a native, but his students had to read them as foreigners. And I kind of feel the same way about Tolkien with like old English. Oh, yeah. That he he could read these kind of the closest to like reading them like a native. And that's why they're able uh, to sort of bring out these things into
0: more modern works. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I do think that's so cool. It's like you get a sort of – you get a sort of – eye uh, into tolkien's mind as you're reading this Yeah. It's like oh, oh so that's huh. how
1: yeah something i'm sure no one who listens to this podcast has any interest in <laughs> right uh, i'm sure we don't have a bunch of lord of the rings fans
0: i actually went to an event gosh this was probably about a year ago we have a we have a group near um near us called the elliott society um my friend justin horse kind of runs it they um they do stuff with like uh faith in the arts um but they had an event where they had a, a college professor and a literature per, uh teacher at one of the local s- classical christian schools near us and they did a uh they did a kind of joint lecture one of them would talk about Beowulf and then the other would talk about the th- same theme from Beowulf and how Tolkien transposed it into Lord of the Rings oh and man. so it just made it was a really cool event i, yeah, I yeah. It was awesome That I'll, sounds I'll try great and find the video and post it in our um post it in our substack yeah so the thesis of the book i do think is on my translation's page 5 um maybe around line 25 24 or so uh where he says behavior that's admired is the path to power among people everywhere
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i think that we i think that we see this very clearly i mean in the story of beowulf for sure but also in some of the side stories we kind of get the idea um at the very beginning of the book and by the way we'll probably butcher some of the pronunciation of the names yeah. um mm-hmm. But Hrothgar, uh, as a king, um, I kind we kind of get that he's on the tail end of his reign. Obviously, he's at this point not able to deal with Grendel um, and the threat that he poses. But he has constructed this great mead hall. And the mead hall is itself kind of a, a really important statement about his reign, you know, that that they're willing to kind of have this place where they can commune and fellowship with each other. mm mm-hmm. um, that is kind of the central location for everything. You you get the kind of feeling that before Rothgar there all, there's all this sort of infighting and a lot of restlessness and mm-hmm. this is putting down roots. This is this is a kind I, of stability.
1: N- yeah, not to sound too Jungian here or Jungian, but there I think a huge theme in this book is um the emergence of order out of chaos yep. and the the effort that it takes to preserve order out of chaos. The wilds are like a chaotic place. There's lots of water imagery, which, in sort of, um, you see this in biblical imagery, is often, uh, uh, but also in a lot of mythological imagery. Water is a sign of chaos or of forces that we can't control, that can be rather domineering. This is why the sea is mm-hmm. the sea is terrifying, you know, before we have mm-hmm. modern ships, right? Um, and yet, uh, Beowulf is able to survive in the sea. He can swim for long periods of time. He can descend into the waters, and uh, for quite a long time, he can hold his breath for a very long time as he as he swims, and he's able to do this. The mead hall is like a place of kingliness and order, right? And then Grendel, obviously the, the sort of demon, the sort of child of Cain, they uh, uh, call him at one point, um, or they sort of alluded to that he's a descendant of Cain. That mm-hmm. Grendel brings chaos into the mead hall, right? And so what was what was orderly can no longer be.
0: Right, right. And I, yeah, I think there's a sense in which, um, the Grendel threat, I mean, there is, Grendel's obviously a character, but I do think in some ways he symbolizes, like you said, the chaos of the coming power vacuum, basically, because, you know, Rothgar at this point is is old enough that this is, this would be something that would be weighing on his mind. Um, and so, so in some ways, Grendel is a personification, I think, of, of that Uncertainty uh, moving forward, transition, Mm -hmm. power transition, you know, and of course, the good news is Beowulf emerges from this power vacuum. Mm -hmm. And we have some interesting political stuff going on with the Danes and the Geats and everything like that, too, um, in terms of the relationship there and, and power vacuums as well. Um, but it is interesting because because we do have this idea. Rothgar is this good guy. He builds the meat hall. We know he uses the meat hall kind of as the central hub for dispensing uh, goods to the young and the old, <laughs> um, is how they describe it. I think uh, the idea being, you know, when they would win spoils in war, they would all bring it back, and then the king would disperse it um, to to everyone. Um, now the relationship between the danes and the geats is probably one that we should talk about um because beowulf he's he doesn't just come out of nowhere and he's not just there because he's a nice guy mm-hmm. uh the danes and the geats have a history together the geats would be swedes mm-hmm. or or sweden at least it would be yeah. sweden um, for those who may not know, but um, but basically, basically Beowulf is trying to right a wrong of a previous generation and mm-hmm. restore a right relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. So he already comes with an agenda in some ways, but it's a good agenda. It's an agenda to to bring about justice. Mm hmm. So just like Rothgar has been a just ruler, I think Beowulf uh, – we should read him as a um, – s- someone in the same vein. Mm-hmm. But the order itself is threatened by, by Grendel, who is a very interesting character. Maybe we could talk about him at this point. Um,
1: yeah, so Grendel has this kind of – I mean, there's kind of a question of like what motivates Grendel, and, and I think you, you see this a lot in um, literature that will have like demons in it, right? And there's like a long like Christian tradition, and Beowulf is a, a text that's sort of heavily Christianized, right? Like the the culture of the this mm-hmm. is um, there are lots of heavy Christian themes going through it, but so much times when you see demons, you kind of think like they're there to destroy for the sake of destruction. Uh, which kind of has its like theological background. And yet Grendel's mother feels like maternal wrath, right? When Grendel is, is, is killed or injured, she's furious, right? So obviously there's, there are like bonds of affection. And right. so they are personified a bit more than maybe you would typically think of them. Um, and so why is it that Grendel wants to come and do this long campaign of destroying the meat hall and killing people? But also, why doesn't he finish the job? Right. Like, why? Why? How can he do this over and over and over, but he never brings full destruction to the place? Yeah. It, well, and there's, there's also,
0: there there is a couple lines that talk about him as like uh, um, an outsider, mm-hmm. and it's almost that outsiderness that makes him want to act violently that's that's kind of how i read it which is interesting because to me that's almost a deeply human reaction yeah, not a yeah, demonic yeah. one you know yeah. it's like it's like yeah he he you know has been kept on the on the outside and and therefore knowing he'll never be accepted by these by these people his only kind of recourse is, is mm-hmm. to lash out violently
1: yeah
0: so i don't know i one wonders one wonders what the kind of what what this is all based on mm-hmm. i mean i could see where this is i could see a very human version of this you know where where this is a a person who's been kept on the fringes of a community and um and that community views them as a threat and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. but that's obviously not how the text presents him i mean the text ties in, tying him to cain making him kind of a a, a demonic figure you know it's not like he's a he's redeemable mm-hmm. according to the text
1: yeah so it is you know,
0: he's he's somewhat mysterious
1: yeah so so now that's an interesting the, the 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 link to cain is actually interesting because sort of in the biblical narrative cain is commits uh fratricide so he kills his brother out of envy essentially and for that he's exiled and then you get these sort of mythologies that build up in uh, various cultures that are influenced by Christianity, that sort of demonic forces are sort of the inheritors of Cain, right? They're, they're the ones who have been cast out or something. And that's what that's how the text presents it here, right? That Cain, after being exiled from humanity, goes on to be the sort of progenitor of like a different race, and this being like sort of the, the monstrous, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the... And so Cain is like the outsider. Cain is the one who is not given the the opportunity or for some reason reconciliation is not made possible. And now his his descendants sort of live in this state of exile still. And humanity can feel this kind of brotherliness. You can even see it between – Geats and Danes, they can come and like, they can come and rebuild these brotherly bonds through actions. So much of Beowulf is about correcting generational wrong, but not just through mutual forgiveness. It's typically through, um, making rights through a kind of retribution or restoration and the Cain sort of the descendants of Cain fall outside of that scheme. That's not, that's not, that's not available to them. When you read it like this, you almost start. You start to feel kind of bad for them,
0: right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There is a part of me as I was reading some of those descriptions, and I was like, "Well, that that seems kind of. I mean, I, you can certainly identify uh, human patterns of behavior where the idea of exclusion ends up creating, you know, something kind of monstrous later. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's uh, it's very it's very I think Grendel makes the text way more interesting than if if he was just a dragon or a troll or something like that you know i mean he he really is so mysterious and um and the ambiguity around him i mean it's kind of like any any good movie monster you know you don't you don't want to show too much of them or else it gets cheesy and I mm-hmm. think Grendel's kind of the same way um,
1: yeah Grendel is not given too many uh descriptions. You get mm-hmm. some ideas of what Grindel is like. Grindel's mother is also not given uh, much of a description other than basically that they're like humans, but bigger and more monstrous and st- stronger. Grindel is impervious to swords because uh, they've been sort of through some kind of sorcery or something, uh, which is actually a feature of him I want to discuss in a moment. But uh, the dragon actually probably gets more of a description of his oh, yeah. like, phys- the physical description. Mm -hmm. Which is a bit funny because actually you would think the dragon would be a symbol that people would be more familiar with. Right. So you would actually know what a dragon looked like because you'd heard stories about these sky lizards that breathe fire or whatever. Yeah. But Grindel is presented as this new thing almost. He's not classified into something, right? He's not, he's not given a genus. And so you can't locate Grindel.
0: And in some ways I feel like his mother's described even less because she's she doesn't even get a name. She doesn't even get a name, yeah. She's just Grendel's mother. <laughs>
1: yeah. And
0: she is sort of defined by
1: her lair and yeah. the revenge she wants to seek for, for Grendel. That's that that's kind of it.
0: Yeah. Right. Which again is like somewhat understandable to me that she yeah. would feel <laughs> a desire for revenge. Yeah. But uh which is exactly what Beowulf it was there for To begin with, anyways, so it is. But they are sort of photo negatives of each other. I guess would be the a good way to describe it.
1: In fact, there's another. There's a later part in the in the text where it's a description of two brothers, and because one brother has killed another, this this uh, I can't remember exactly where in the text. It's one of these sort of historical asides, basically. One brother has killed another, and so the king can't exact a blood price because he doesn't want to kill his uh, his heir. Mm, And so mm -hmm. it's it's a way, and, and the king can't. Thus, the king cannot do what justice demands, uh, as the, as they sort of would conceive of it. And this brings about shame, and this brings about sort of instability, right? Uh-huh. There's no way to right this wrong, and so the idea that you would retaliate violently uh, is actually not a foreign idea to this text. So, this is this is actually another theme I wanted to bring up, which is like Beowulf is such a Christian text. They, they give Christian prayers. You have all these descriptions uh, of this. But there's two things that I think don't quite align with this, right? So one is there's no description of like – is there a description of like the mass or anything? Mm-mm. Yeah, so there's no description of like the mass, which would have been a fairly common occurrence. Um, right. And two, there's a lot of violence. <laughs> there's, like, a lot of, like, heroic, noble violence, including exacting revenge and things. A- and, you know, that, that just kind of stands out to you when you look at some other sort of Christianized literature, right? <laughs> they tend to not erase the violence totally.
0: Um, but you think of, like, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's hardly any re- – I mean, the, there's the game itself, mm-hmm. but it's a game. You know, it's yeah. not like yeah. – uh, it's not it's not nearly as –
1: Yeah, and um, they go to mass in uh, going. Oh yeah, well the whole thing is
0: happening around Saint Stephen's Day, right, or something. Yeah, yeah,
1: and they they but they talk at one point about like he has to go to his um like he's about to like actually go to the green the the Green Knight or something, and that's when he um they're like what does he do first? Like he goes and says his prayers and like uh, right and and goes to mass, right? Um,
0: and so the only the only thing I could think of that might make this slightly. Uh, less of a problem. It's just that this is a slightly earlier text and also it's geographically set in a in a further out kind of area, that that um, kind of Anglo-Saxon, you know, area um, yeah. may have meet, meant that the traditions were a little different around some of that. I don't Yeah, know.
1: I, yeah you know, I, I'm not a historian of like sort of the spread of Christianity into Europe. Right. But it, like what would clearly a Christian culture has emerged because the characters are representations of this and the author wants to portray that. And in fact, we actually see this with a lot of Norse mythology as well. Um, Like, but you'll read in some Norse mythology, lots of like Christian themes seem to emerge or Christian messages. Um, There's some good reason to think that that's because actually the oldest surviving copies were sort of rewritten by monks. They were the only ones to preserve them, but then they also were the ones to, sort of give it a bit of a touch up. Um Beowulf I don't think I don't think the textual evidence for Beowulf is that it was like rewritten in this regard, right? So mm-hmm. it was I think I think the, this is a you know we're basing this on sort of the earliest thing we have. We don't have like a a history of it being revised. Maybe I'm totally wrong there. If someone knows more about this, please let me know. But yeah. you know, what what was like everyday Christian culture like, right? I don't know because Christianity spread in Europe is really messy. Uh even the Christianity spread to England is, is really messy. It's essentially Christianized twice. Right. Uh, with, um, with a lot of, um, conflict, uh, there. And then the spread North is even harder, uh, and probably more troubled just the further you get out in distance and the harsher the conditions are. So, you know, has a priestly class emerged, right? Has the priesthood like sort of made its rounds so that it's like a regular part of the the life. Well, at least in this text there, the priests are invisible. People are praying to God, but, you know, there's no priest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's very – it is very interesting. Um, there are a number of uh, sort of biblical allusions, Christological allusions throughout the text, which I think are very interesting. <laughs> and you you can tell are clearly uh, Christian. Um, like there's uh, – towards the beginning of the book, around line 180 or so. There's a kind of curse and blessing, blessing and woe type, uh, which you see uh, throughout the old Testament, actually cursed is he who in times of trouble has to thrust his soul in f- the fires embrace forfeiting help. He has nowhere to turn, but blessed is he who after death can approach the Lord and find fin- friendship in the father's embrace. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah.
0: like, you can, you can put that in Deuteronomy 28 or 30, you know, when they're doing yeah. the liturgy of the woes and, and the blessings, mm-hmm. um, but there is kind of an interesting, and and it's it's interesting to see the the cultural, the enculturation of the Christianity that Beowulf presents. Um, so there, so you get you get frame framing like that that's biblical. But then you also get um, imagery like I think at one point it talks about God's war loom. Hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of weaving a fate. Or yeah. Something. Um, yeah. Also, I just noticed something. I just noticed, and I missed it. So, something I said earlier I'm a fool. So, someone who knows this text better than me will know. Here's why Grendel can't finish the job in the, uh, the meat hall. This is online uh, around 165. So, Grendel waged his lonely war, inflicting constant cruelties on the people, atrocious hurt. He took over Heriot, haunted the glittering hall after dark, but the throne itself. The treasure seat he was kept from approaching. He was the Lord's outcast. Yeah, yeah. And that's capital L. Yep. So it's like an act of God keeps him from approaching the, yep. the throne. The, the throne. That's right. Where sort of grace is conferred to the people. Right. That's where mm-hmm. that's where the treasure is 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 given out. That's where the spoils are distributed to the people.
0: And Very Grendel, interesting.
1: Grindel being perhaps being a descendant of Cain, right? Being this exile, cannot fully approach interesting
0: i wanted to talk about one character who i think is presented well he's definitely presented in a very poor light and i don't know he's not presented perhaps as the lord's outcast but i think in some ways he's presented um as being on the wrong side and that's the character of Unfirth, who's the one who uh he kind of challenges Beowulf. Um, yeah, so, you know, so
1: he doesn't wait, believe Be- he, he doesn't believe Beowulf's sort of legacy. Right, right. He's a he cynic. In it. A way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, "How could you possibly do this? Why are you really here?" And Beowulf is like, "Oh yeah, you're right. I did lose." that swimming competition, but that's because I was like under the ocean for a couple of days, killing sea monsters <laughs> yeah. and giving them what this great line, they say, the, this giving them the sleep of the sword. Yeah. And, and, yes. and he washes ashore and he's like, he's like, I'm so thankful I was wearing all this heavy armor while I was swimming or else I would have died. Of course, you know, the heavy armor making his swimming so much more impressive. Um, he, and then Unferth gets to partially redeem himself at the lake, right before yeah. they go into uh, before he descends, but he gets to redeem himself by handing over a sword and admitting that Beowulf is the better swordsman and the better warrior. Yeah, yeah.
0: I I I thought that was uh, I thought that was funny, but I do think that there's something about unfur. I, um, some you know sometimes when when someone is really virtuous. By nature of their virtue, they will uh, garner opposition, mm-hmm. and I think Unferth is that opposition for Beowulf. Beowulf is actually just a virtuous guy, yeah. And yeah. for some reason, Unferth can't take that, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I think there's something. I think there's something very negative about that. Um, yes, also, he has a so, chance to redeem. Oh, go ahead. There's
1: the, but there's also something a little understandable about Unferth in sure. the sense that the things that are attributed to Beowulf are extraordinary. Yes. Uh, and of course, he has to see that Beowulf is actually capable of these things. You know, he can – and he can see that after the first battle with, with Grindel before they, the, the descent where Beowulf is able to cling so hard to Grindel's hand that he rips Grindel's arm off. And so now there is no uh, – there's no doubt that Beowulf is capable of these things.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you
1: know, would you believe him? <laughs>
0: right no no i mean he has got a point <laughs> yeah it's just but narratively i think he's yeah, being yeah. depicted a certain way i mean i yeah oh i, I mean think, but um, it's,
1: like, it's like um any there's this is a this is a common trope i think in a lot of films where like the hero will do something astounding and there will be like the the cynic who can't believe it the person who mm-hmm. always wants to say but no can't you see this is all a fraud or something like this and and through in all of these narratives that person is seen as like the dunce or even worse, like one of the bad guys. Right. But if you stop to think about it, oftentimes that person is like the voice of reason. Sure. Sure. Which is, which is a weird place to be because there's sort of two ways to, to, to go from there. Once you've, once you've made that realization, you sort of, the, there's sort of a fork in the road. One of them is that you start to think maybe the voice of reason is not actually that reasonable. Maybe this is someone who will cling to reason in order to kind of feel superior and often denying what could be hopeful right it's mm-hmm. sort of reason trumping hope or reason trumping wonder right and not being set in its proper place another way of it, to look at it though is that like storytellers are liars and <laughs> they like to make the wise look foolish yes so so there's sort of two directions we could go here
0: yes I I and I think from a literary perspective in some way the the latter is what's going on I think that Unferth is is kind of a foil for Beowulf you know yeah, to to, yeah. to prove his virtue to prove his um his kind of political uh adeptness I guess um so I anyways I just found him to be a very interesting character mm. um and 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 he does provide some comic relief, I suppose, in that Beowulf gets to his correction is pretty funny, yes. um, and also uh, spending five or six days in the water killing sea monsters is quite a quite a workout regimen. I was wondering <laughs> how ripped Beowulf is. I mean, he must have been pretty fantastic.
1: You know, there's um. Did you ever read Neil Gaiman's retellings of North Norse mythology? No. You, it almost makes me sad that the Beowulf movie is apparently very bad because Neil Gaiman seems to kind of grasp something there. He, he kind of says he takes liberties with those myths, and one of the things that he does with Thor is he makes Thor into bit uh, have a lot of like bravado and to be kind of a almost like a kind of a like a like a stupid jock stereotype often comes up. Um, where he, Thor will just like rush into some physical challenge just because he thinks it's so cool, right? But he doesn't like bother with the consequences and he's not super wise or mm-hmm. something. And Beowulf is almost like this version of Thor. Beowulf is like that version of Thor, but without the stupidity. Like he is, he is both incredibly strong. He isn't, he, but he's brave. He's wise. He's temperate. Um, you know, he's, he's the one who can. Still find a way to sleep before the day the day before the battle. You know he's the one who listens to his duties. Who doesn't rush in? Mm-hmm.
0: He offers at one point. Beowulf offers a a kind of code, heroic code. This is around the line, maybe thirteen eighty three eighty four. Beowulf spoke. Why, sir, do not grieve? It is always better to avenge dear ones than to indulge in mourning. Mm. For every yeah. one of us living in this world means waiting for our end. Let whoever can win glory before death. When a warrior is gone, that will be his best and only bulwark. So arise, my lord, and let us immediately set forth on this trail of this troll dam. I, um, see that to me that's one of the places where the pagan stuff is thro- shining through a little more.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I wanted to say. You know, it's it's one of these like that's not the the same beowulf who who prays that whoever the lord wills will win or something right <laughs> like like that. Right. right um and it it kind of that's kind of an interesting thought of like beowulf is like clearly has lots of christian influences but just like how heavily christian did it right. was it actually right right um, and, and and in fact like god the Christian God ends up being almost kind of a big war God. Yep. Know, he's been sort of assimilated into this worldview. Um, sort of, you can imagine there's two ways that can occur when Christianity answers a culture and becomes like a big force. One way is that it sort of takes over and it sort of becomes the dominant way of viewing the world. But another way is that you sort of just like posit this grand Supreme being and then incorporate him into all of your, your existing ethics and morals mm-hmm. and sort of cosmology And so the Lord is gracious in all of these things. And by that, I mean, he lets us kill our enemies.
0: (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Right. Well, even the prayer, you know, I mean, if it's true about Grendel that he's the Lord's outcast and, you know, he can't approach the throne and um, he's been cursed by God and all these things, then Beowulf's prayer will let whoever win, win. Kind of, to me, has has an almost sort of hollow ring to it. It's like, well, you know what you're really praying for. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, like – is god is god gonna, to the deck is god gonna let the demons win right like that doesn't that doesn't seem right. right that doesn't that doesn't seem right yeah but it's like always a pious thing to but say, i did
0: right right yeah it, but this moment this moment in the text is very homeric really right i mean mm-hmm. this idea like the hero the hero the the great moment for the hero is to die and they're kind of better off after their death because then they reach a sort of immortality through the glory that they win in, in battle or whatever um is it's very interesting, um. Yeah, it does. Uh, it does well. I don't know. It, I, initially, it strikes us as being very uh, incompatible with Christianity. I do wonder if, in their in their time period and given kind of their cultural expectations, which may have probably derived a great deal of influence from the pagans, though. I mean, if this was the job of the of the king of the thing, you know, that that you have to protect your land and the people who dwell there and all that. And so rather than spending time back mourning, we have to be proactive, we have to go do. There is a sense in which uh I think this could be kind of correlated with the with the sort of duty because the same king who's giving the people things from his throne, distributing all the, the wealth, you know, that's part of the exchange. He got that wealth because he protects them. Mm, yeah. So there is a sense in which he's, he Beowulf is urging, I think, urging, um, urging them to do the right thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard to, it's, well, it's even more complicated because we're coming at this from, you know, a generally Christian point of view. And so it, it just makes all the blending of cultures very difficult.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this is this is always like a, a challenge, I think, of reading older texts that clearly have like Christian influences, and not just reading them as like as Christians, but also just reading them as like people who have been so heavily influenced by Christian literature and culture. Right. That's the mm-hmm. sort of um, the, the sort of challenge that we have to face is like. How do we make sure that we're not like reading back into things? Um, you know, does that make sense? Like, uh, how do we make sure that we're not reading too much of Christianity into some of these stories in a way right. uh, that so we're still sort of doing our due diligence and sort of taking care of or um, um, honoring the text kind of on its own, right? right. Right. That's the, uh,
0: that's sort of it's the, interesting. The, and well, the reason I, the reason I bring up this point about Beowulf's heroic code is tied to the, some of the advice that, um, Hothgar gives Beowulf as Rothgar's you know, dying, um, kind of his last advice, 1758,
1: mm-hmm.
0: maybe not while he's dying. It's just towards the end of, of that section of the book. Um, O oh, flowers, a flower of warriors, beware of that trap. Choose, dear Beowulf, the better part, eternal rewards. So previously, Beowulf's heroic code is, you know, the warrior earns his glory now through through the battlefield, and then here, Hrothgar is saying you have to you have to think in terms of eternal reward. Don't give way to pride for a brief while your strength is in bloom, but it fades quickly, and soon there will follow illness or the sword to lay you low or a sudden fire or surge of water or jabbing blade or javelin from the air or repellent age um, So there's this idea of keeping the keeping the eternal in view. I sort of wonder if if some of this is is an age thing. I mean just purely you know Beowulf uh, represents uh, a hero kind of in his prime whereas Rothgar as we've said is is representing a hero kind of on his way out um, who's clearly become feeble. Um, yeah. but perhaps that vantage point gives him some insight that, that Beowulf has not learned yet, but, but needs to.
1: Do we see any, um, any changes in Beowulf as he ages? Hmm. Like, you know, um, because he kind of becomes, in fact, Hrothgar, like he takes, uh, later on because he becomes a king. And in fact, mm-hmm. there is no one to unite them when he, when Beowulf, dies. Beowulf never and has no has no heir, so right. that same worry of like a power vacuum, mm-hmm. right? And so Beowulf, in some ways, by by killing himself, is becoming um, more, you know, um, or not by killing himself in the sense of like um, trying to commit suicide but like by going to his death in this way he is you know sort of saving himself from having to solve that particular pro- problem <laughs> but he does it in a noble way in the sense like that he's also saving like his people right, right. yeah and, i and think we, and yeah we i get mean, a glimpse that there will be another young warrior who emerges right because there's one who stood with beowulf there's like one right guy. so there is hope but you know does does his does his outlook at all change because of um does does beowulf's outlook change as he gets older in a way that we can like really see
0: i know the text says that he grew old and wise as warden of the land um but do we have any real examples of that I mean, I guess his willingness to sacrifice, but he's been willing to sacrifice up to this point, so it doesn't seem like a particular...
1: You kind of actually get the sense with Beowulf that he's, every time, he's okay with dying. Right. Because he would die in, like, a glorious way.
0: Well, the only only difference that I see in this situation is that he goes to Hrothgar's kingdom seeking glory i mean that heroic code he gives is pretty uh straightforward i think you know now now's the time we've got to win this now and you know if we die then we we get all this glory whereas his motivation for what he does with the dragon is more of a kingly out of mm-hmm. kingly duty it feels like he's he is actually protecting his people yeah doing yeah. doing what Rothgar was trying to do but couldn't mm-hmm. um So I, I suppose I suppose the motive could be different.
1: Yeah. Um, here's a question for you. Is there any significance in the fact that Beowulf is essentially unable to use swords?
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? So it, he,
1: he's at, it, throughout the whole text he like is, he's like taking them. Uh, he uses one to basically cut off Grindel's head after Grindel's already been injured. Right, and the sword is destroyed. Right. That's that. That's kind of it. Only get you get to use it once. He doesn't use a sword to fight Grindel. He's the only one who seems to know that Grindel can't be hurt by swords or something because his compatriots are his like band are all hitting him with this. Um. So there's that. And then um, with the the dragon, actually, he his sword breaks because it said that he's too strong to use them. That he can never <laughs> hit appropriately. Yep why is that you know this is this is such a strange thing you know and and also beowulf is also mostly impervious to swords which is something he actually mm-hmm. kind of shares with grendel grendel is through sorcery beowulf is because he like has like the finest uh armor and things right mm-hmm. and, he, and he can't be hurt mm-hmm. in this way but there is something kind of there is that that is an interesting parallel right
0: oh yeah 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 he um Grendel, see, it's interesting with Grendel because we don't have that much of a description of him, but you get this idea that he is certainly larger than. He's not just a mere humanoid, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. he would be perhaps like a Nephilim or a giant or something, you know. I mean, he's he's a large creature and he's scooping up people. I mean, you know, it's not like he's just fighting one person at a time. He's like able to grab multiple people at once. So that Beowulf, so for Beowulf to be able to fight him hand to hand combat and rip like his holding arm his off,
1: hand, right? right. They're like locking arms. Yeah, yeah,
0: is is pretty amazing. I I guess I would just, I guess I would read that as, you know, you can't chalk Beowulf's victory up to, up to anything other than his own sheer sort of strength hmm Um, it's not the tool. Mm-hmm. It's it's literally him, and it's it's the most direct. Which mm-hmm. is interesting because this is a place where it seems like uh I feel like Tolkien kind of diverges from this, doesn't he? Mm, I mean think about yeah. like Aragorn and his sword, and it's like yeah, the sword like, carries so much significance.
1: I yeah, I think like with Aragorn, like the sword is sort of a statement of his kingliness. True. And he's like able to do what he can do once he is willing to take up the sword. The movies mm-hmm. kind of change the meaning of this, in my opinion. That's the movies true. make it him like a reluctant king, yeah. Um, and, but in in the in Lord of the Rings, it's more of like he knows when it will be time for him to do it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's how he's able to like bring like sort of the ghost army and things because they've been waiting for this king to 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 do these things. Um, in this way, he's sort of a foil to the king of Rohan. Right, mm-hmm. who is not able to like sort of operate as a king because under like the um the influence of wormwood. Um but yeah, the tools seem to matter quite a bit. Um in the case of like Frodo, right, Frodo has Sting, which sort of lets him know when the orcs are, are, yep. are around. Um he even has the one ring, right? Like even though it's a thing that he must also destroy, it's also a thing he can, he can use. Um mm-hmm. and so a lot of it is attributed to items or objects of mm-hmm. power, right? And items and objects of power aren't really emerging here. There are items and objects of like significance. They are mm-hmm. beautiful or well-made or something, but they aren't specifically invested with something.
0: Yeah, so in a world where in a world where you associate characters with objects. Beowulf mm-hmm. has no object to which he can be associated. When mm-hmm. you think of Beowulf, it's it's exactly what you said. It's that kind of noble ferocity, I think, is, yep. is really what what's highlighted by all this.
1: In fact, when he gets spoils from like the lair, right, or like when he could bring out like items, he the one item he uses is destroyed by the blood. The blood melts the sword. Right. He brings the head, but other men carry the head back. He gives back like these swords or armor and all of these things. He gives it all away. He gives almost everything that he was given by hrothgar he gives to his own king when he when he returns beowulf is like has no need of any of that right and so he's sort of wholly detached or something yes yeah
0: detached is a good is a good word for it is
1: beowulf Um, an ascetic
0: there well there's a sense in which i mean uh, that's the king should be in some way a noble king should be in some way because um because that's their job in this culture of handing things out to people. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the warfare was such a group venture. So a greedy king could really – you could see where the instability can arise from weaker, less virtuous men
1: mm-hmm.
0: who, and so the, the king almost given I, great sums of gold, want to
1: – The king almost has to practice asceticism to an extreme because the temptations are so great. Right? So if he indulged mm-hmm. himself mm-hmm. kind of to the degree that we indulge ourselves in our ordinary non-kingly lives, then the amount that he would amass is, is astounding. Right. 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 So, you know. Yeah. And by that, I mean like if he you – know, And he would – 10% en- of what he could, could get or something, right? Yeah. But he would, he would end up be being a very
0: – Duty. Yeah. Well, exactly. and And as a result, you would get the kind of power vacuums and instability that – Rothgar seems to overcome at the beginning yeah. you know, that, that yeah. kind of inf- constant infighting. Yeah. Um,
1: there's a, absolutely. there's a, there's a, there's a very classic text of uh, Xenophon on tyranny where he's talking, this philosopher's talking to a tyrant about like why tyrants are the happiest people. And the tyrant is always explaining to the, the philosopher that in fact, tyrants can't be happy because tyrants um, must always be worried about death. And tyrants must always be worried about giving away things. And they must, they have to constantly like be buying off their, their friends even because the tyrant can could always be overthrown. Um, mm. and you might think the king the the king's one chance at being happy is to give away all his money. Right. <laughs> is right. to actually is to live like a poor man. Yeah. Yep. A yep. poor man who also has immense power, but still his one way of holding on to that power and surviving is to is to give things away
0: yeah 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 I mean even the very nature of the Mead hall uh, seems to seems to be built on that premise right it's mm-hmm. like here's this place you come and I take care of you and um but but in so doing it becomes a kind of social hub mm-hmm. so yes it's very interesting
1: this is where the um this is where the great warriors will, will find themselves, right? By by creating that place, right? Without... So it's, it's kind of interesting. Without the Mead Hall, does Grendel ever come? But also without the Mead Hall, does Beowulf ever come? Right. Like, the Mead Hall draws in warriors. It also makes itself a target. Mm-hmm. Because you could imagine... Suppose Grendel never comes, but the Mead Hall is there. Beowulf still wants to draw this, this connection between the... The Danes and the the Geats, right? There's still, there's still, a, there's already a history there, right? And there something needs to be done or said. So you can imagine Beowulf would find his way there eventually, right? It might not be as mm-hmm. there, and, but the but the mead hall is kind of the locus of that, right? Yeah,
0: right, right. Where would he go without that? I yeah, mean, exactly. I, right. Yes. Well, very interesting. Well, uh, any other? um thoughts or or observations about the text that you feel like we haven't gotten to cover today
1: i guess i just have to say that um i repent i think Beowulf is very good now <laughs> sometimes you just need to talk about it with someone now i think bail really good and
0: so <laughs> yeah well and i think too and, and and i meant to kind of harp on this more in the beginning but we got caught up into into other very interesting topics you know Everybody has books in the canon that when you read them, you think, why is this here? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you know, we can handle that in two ways. And I think one is kind of a juvenile. We can just sort of put it down, not think about it, just say, well, it's just not very good. And, you know, I, I just don't care. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is we can allow our, our dis- dislike, initial dislike of the book to challenge us. And mm-hmm. we can say, you know. What, yeah. what am I, what am I not seeing here that people have seen for a thousand years? So I, I kind of have this, this, this view
1: of reading. Like, I think, I think quitting a book is nothing to be ashamed of. Like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you, for a couple of reasons, one is like, you might just really hate it and you're not enjoying it and you're not actually, it could stop you from reading. Right. And so you could just put the book down. I also think sometimes some books are too hard for you at a time, or it's not the right time for it, you. So you should just put it down and come back to it later. Right. I'm all for that. But. Sometimes, if you can push through and maybe talk about it with a friend, you will find that some of these works are truly tremendous and that you just needed to bring things out, right? That you just needed to think about them more. Uh-huh. Um, and that m- with a lot of these canonical works, they don't immediately open themselves up to the reader. Some do. Some some are very, very simple um, or straightforward in this regard, but some aren't. And maybe the more culturally distant we get, the harder that is too. So, um, for some reason, I feel like I have more in common culturally with Boethius than I do with the author of *Faith*. Mm. Sure. Sure. Um,
0: uh, and, well, uh, and the so, I, Boe- Boethius was philosophically educated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, he and I have a, or we're, we're part of this, this multi-generational brotherhood or something. Right. But, um, um, and that's how I'll console myself when I'm in prison one day, say, just like Boethius. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, the so 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 because of that distance, maybe it's harder. You know, may, maybe this is going to make me think about Homer more or Dante. With Homer and Dante, I kind of already had bought into that they would be great, even if I didn't enjoy them, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because I'm more familiar with the sort of traditions that build themselves on those texts. Where with Beowulf, like, I know it influences Tolkien and things, but I I, I kind of view it almost as an isolated text of it, so because uh, I don't draw a lot of other connections to it. So there's that, too. But I think, you know, quit books if you have to, but or just say that you're going to come back to them later, but, um, you know, finish the book if you can. Yeah. And in fact, actually, with Beowulf, I read like a third of it, wasn't loving it. I put it down for like two weeks. And like read like two other books in that time. And then I just picked it up where I, where I left off. I do this all the time with books. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something I highly recommend. Sometimes art people are aghast when they hear this. They, they think, how could you put a book down, read another book in the middle and then come back? Like, it's shockingly easy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and I think too, you know, even if – so even if you put Beowulf down and you say, I'm not going to finish it, um, you can still do a little work, I think, on – you know, well, what, what is it that attracts so many people to the text? You know, I mean, you could, you could do just a little reading of, you know, I'm sure there are many good essays on Beowulf or something, you know, just find some stuff and you can say, okay, well, I don't, I I can't read this right now. I just don't get it, but I at least can appreciate it. You know, that, that, um, that way, uh, that way you at least can kind of, Walk away from the text with a perhaps more positive uh, view than if you just put it down and say, "Ah, that's not for me, you know
1: absolutely. Also reading is part of character formation, like in the modern age. Um, contra, some of the contra some of the saints actually, who would say <laughs> say the opposite, but but you know I think I think reading is part of character formation, and sometimes you need to learn lessons that you're not already desirous of learning mm-hmm. or from sources that you're not desirous of learning them from. And so, thinking about Beowulf or something might be something you need to do, or, or for other people, maybe Beowulf is the easy text to read, and it's reading Beowulf that's the hard part, right? But if we think that it's if we think that reading is part of character formation, then we shouldn't expect it always to be easy or enjoyable in the moment, but we should often expect it to, in retrospect, be something we're glad we've done.
0: Mm, yes, yes, yes. The kind of pleasure we derive from reading is not. Uh, it's it, it, it is, so it's, sh- or right, sometimes exactly. it can be,
1: sometimes it can be, but, but not, not, always.
0: well, it can be like going to the gym for the first time in a while, you know, yeah you, yeah you, afterwards you might say, oh, this was, that was worth it. I'm glad I did that. But in yeah. the moment, you're probably not enjoying it as much. Exactly. Exactly. But it's about building muscles and, and mm-hmm. getting better and practicing and, um, and improving, um, because it's a skill, it's just like anything else. And so, yeah. um. Yeah, you, you sometimes you just gotta slog through it. Put in your ten thousand hours and
1: <laughs> soon. Hopefully it doesn't take you
0: ten thousand hours to read Beowulf.
1: Yeah, soon we will all be our own Malcolm Gladwells. That's not <laughs> what you meant? No. That's right. <laughs> does
0: well, that bring us does that bring us well, to Well I think notes? um I think this does bring us to Endnotes. I think it does. Uh Jared, what do you have for uh for EndNotes? The easy
1: recommendation, obviously, would be to read Tolkien's um, translation of Beowulf, too, if you're into that sort of thing. But I think that sure. – um, but but I actually think what I want to recommend is a, probably a book that we're going to cover at some point. But um, it's one that I found easier to read, uh, and yet there's a lot of similarities, and that is uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Mm. Uh, I want to recommend this text. It's, it's another kind of heroic, epic tale, but there's there's more humor to it. There's a kind of wry humor uh, in in Gawain that kind of stands in contrast uh, to to Beowulf in a lot of ways. Beowulf is not a particularly funny text, uh, right. and so I just think for some reason they feel like natural they feel like natural pairings, hmm. and uh, you know go go give that a shot.
0: And that's also a very short and quick, easy read. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. And actually, uh, unlike Beowulf, I actually think that Sir Gawain. I think that the movie that came out, The Green Knight, uh, a few years ago now, I guess, was very good. Um, perhaps that's something we can talk about when the uh, when yeah. we get there. Uh, my view know, is that that, bit, that I, movie I it was bit. fine. <laughs> I, I honestly <laughs>
1: – <laughs> but I, I actually yeah, mean that. Well, I kind of w- walked out of that movie, and my wife turns to me. We don't go to see movies all that often. I more often go by myself, but she went with me that time. And she turns to me, and she's like, so what did you think? And I was like, yeah. Okay, like that's how I <laughs> it was. It was as if I hadn't seen a movie. That you know, uh, that's like my sure. state had this was, was so unchanged. Even though there are some parts of it that I think are really great, it is very beautiful sure. as well. It's a beautiful, sure. but sure,
0: we'll, well talk. About we can that talk maybe. about that more. In fact, we could probably do something around that when we do the other episode. Like like have a have a watch through of the movie or something, and and we discuss just the film and the and I've, the book. And been, so that I've
1: I've been thinking that for um for our supporters on Substack, when we do. Books that have movie adaptations that we could do like a special bonus thing for them.
0: Oh, that would maybe, be fun.
1: Maybe like a watch party sometimes. That's hard to organize all the time or se- sure. separate episodes. Um, we could definitely do that with like Macbeth, which is coming up soon. Coming up. Like, oh, Mac yeah. Month. You know, yeah. We could do it with Sir Gawain. If we ever do the Lord of the Rings, you know, we can,
0: we, we can all get in our PJs and watch, uh, the extended. <laughs> <laughs> yes, big marathon, big marathon. Yeah. Um, for my for my end note, um, I'm gonna do one that's not very um surprising at all, and in fact, I've already mentioned it and already uh, given it to um some of our uh paid, our Substack subscribers. Um, but Beowulf, the monsters, and the critics is the lecture that Tolkien gave, and I think that um, you know, we we think of. The Tolkens and the Lewises of the world as as great authors, and they were, but they were great scholars in terms of of being literary uh, critics and and um, Tolkien really that lecture uh, not only will help you appreciate Tolkien or Beowulf, but I think will help you appreciate Tolkien more. Mm. Um, just to see him doing what it was he was trained to do, which is that kind of literary scholarship. So yeah. I highly highly recommend. Um, that everyone check that out and, uh, perhaps we can put that in the show notes or something as well, um, for people, if they're interested in finding that, well, this has been fun. That's Jared, been I'm fun. glad we converted you <laughs> to being a Beowulf lover.
1: Yeah. i see you listeners, at the next meeting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, listeners, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for listening and supporting us. Um, our next episode will be next month on Macbeth. So in the meantime keep reading
1: a shakespearean play i haven't read you haven't read it never
0: i've read a lot oh, of shakespear oh. i've read macbeth
1: interesting okay see everyone if you ever think i sound smart remember that i'm actually mostly an unread fool <laughs> i read a lot of philosophy but there's a lot of stuff i haven't read
0: that's very interesting yeah. well very, i'm excited that'll yeah. be that makes it even more fun yeah to It'd experience this with you for the first time
1: yeah all right take care everyone bye